Welcome to Fandom Media. Better Call Saul, Season 3, Episode 8 is here. Jimmy and Mike both hit major milestones on their way towards their own personal breaking bads. I think that's a good way to put it, right? Yeah, of course. I agree yeah. with me. What about you guys? <laughs> I mostly agree with you. Okay. Not but at I, all. But I agree <laughs> with me even more. Meta Elements. This episode was, of course, titled Slip, and next week's is Fall. Uh-oh. A little bit of a pair there. Slip is a reference to Slip and Jimmy, which he talked about in the pilot. He talked about how he could clear six or eight grand with a fall. <laughs> yep, looks like he did. <laughs> but there's a couple other places where Slip came into play, in my opinion. For instance, Kim slipped Howard a check right there. <laughs> and Nacho slipped in a new bottle of pills into Hector's jacket. Oh, yeah, of course. With only two episodes left after this one, they start to the episodes start to have a bit more of a climactic feel. There's a lot more happening. Things are a little more serious. Maybe the consequences are larger. The stakes are higher, perhaps. And it's just pretty exciting. I think um, we're looking forward to the climax. It was definitely a very intense episode. I was full of uh, emotions of one sort or another, and a lot of a lot of these scenes, whether it was suspense or frustration or concern or whatever, it was. Uh, as opposed to a normal episode of Better Call Saul where you're just, you know, blasé about the whole thing. You don't care. <laughs> well, in some episodes, there's more, like, moments of humor or moments to ponder our character's thoughts. But this one was moments of, like, oh, crap, don't mess this up, you know? <laughs> Narrative. This episode started out with a flashback to Slippin' Jimmy and his friend, that's Marco Pasternik, who is that large guy who had an episode named after him, Marco, and, of course, passed away. I think this scene is pretty key, that if you think about the timing of this scene in this episode, it's kind of reminding us Saul is still Slippin' Jimmy, or Jimmy is still Slippin' Jimmy. This is his path to become Saul. We see back in the past the sort of scams he was running, we see in this episode him running a scam with knowledge of the law. His spiel to the guy in charge of the community service hours there, we see that's angles he can take now that he didn't have before. You know, he's better than ever at manipulating things. Yeah, he's talking about how he saw his father being really weak. He used the term how he had a soft touch and how people manipulated him regularly because of how easy it was. And that apparently had a big impact on Jimmy, and it probably had a big impact on Chuck as well, just very different types of impact. I thought this was an interesting converse to Chuck talking about Jimmy taking money out of the register in a previous episode, and Jimmy saying he's taking it out because these are rare coins that he wants to collect, which is a pretty mild thing to do. It's not some huge transgression like he was sneaky stealing. Not to say that Jimmy maybe also didn't steal once he sets a precedent for taking his coins out. He might justify taking money out in other ways for other reasons. But on some level, he was taking his coins out to protect his dad, you know, or to protect. Maybe it's maybe it's purely selfish, but it's still a little bit different of a take than how Chuck saw Jimmy as taking advantage of his dad. Certainly, if you do something like small like that, take a to just take a coin here and there, it gets a little easier. You know, every time you do it, he probably gets easier for him to justify it. It's definitely a slip in Jimmy's slope. <laughs> we see this band-aid pack that Jimmy's holding these coins in, and Marco dumps all the coins out. He takes the coins and leaves the empty pack there. But at the end of the scene, Jimmy grabs it, even though it's empty because he wants to save it. It's his memento. And we've seen this band-aid pack before, earlier and later, technically, in Gene's future in his collection of mementos he's got that band-aid pack in the pilot it was another thing i liked about the opening scene is it 
reminds us and even demonstrates that they were friends, that Marco and Jimmy were friends, and they had a relationship and a rapport and everything with each other, and his friend is dead, you know, it's kind of it's kind of sad, it kind of posthumously makes us feel bad about the funeral all over again, if that makes sense, you know. Yeah. So he gets into an awkward situation with the music twins again, where he tries to get them to follow through on the deal he arranged with them. He gave them a pretty bad deal in the first place, and they figured it out, and there was no real attempt at middle ground. You know, Jimmy didn't really come down at all, and they offered him a pretty terrible, uh, you know, conciliatory deal there in exchange. So... Obviously, we see what happens next, and boy, he really caught air there, didn't he? I guess that was probably some sort of stunt guy. If Bob Odenkirk did that himself, then wow. <laughs> yeah, it was a stunt guy, and they like composited Bob Odenkirk's face onto it with a bit of visual effects. Nice slip. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it did seem like for the most part, the scene of him walking away was, you know, his face wasn't to the camera, but one one way or the other, it was a, a bit of a stunt that uh, seemed natural as far as filming to me. Yeah, he enlisted that camera guy to help him with this, to turn the camera on. He's the one who he gave a heads up that he was doing something, and Mm -hmm. that was the right choice. Not only did he have the camera, but he's definitely the most shady, I think, out of all of those. He's getting paid either way, right? reviews. We also had a good moment here with Makeup Girl when she (laughs) came up to brush her makeup brush on one of the twins' face, and he just brushed her <laughs> he away. He wasn't having it. The one guy seemed more cool with the idea of making a commercial than the other one, huh? And with makeup. Yeah. <laughs> we get a scene with Jimmy at his community service again with this jerk who's in charge of him. This guy also not letting one of the other people there go visit their sick daughter in a hospital, and Jimmy decides to stand up for him, again, using his knowledge of the law. But here, you know, on his path toward where we see him in the future, defending someone who he knows is a drug dealer. He knows this guy's a, a shady character. But he also feels like, hey, he's got rights, and this guy is not treating us fairly. And so, so Jimmy wants to stand up for him. Well, I would say he stood up for him. He <laughs> literally laid down on the job and talked his way out of it. We see Jimmy do what he's best at, which is use words. And his adversary, in this case, is very ill-equipped. And, of course, Jimmy was bluffing because he himself can't really, you know, if he's going to sue somebody, he has to hire a lawyer. He can't practice law himself. So it was a bit of a bluff, but it was a pretty effective bluff. Pretty sure that was going to work, and it certainly did. And it was great to see. It was great to see him do his thing again. Maybe he could get Kim to help. (laughs) (laughs) Need your help again, Kim. I think it's this big oil company thing and this bank. But also, I got this drug dealer. (laughs) (laughs) He gave me 700 bucks. (laughs) So this is almost like Saul's first client. Not really, not not officially, and he's not defending him of a crime. But to me, it felt a little bit like a bit of a precursor to what's coming later when he's working with drug dealers all the time and defending them, you know, from real crimes. And to clarify, you mean Saul's first client as opposed to Jimmy's first client. Right. right. This new persona that he's developing. Yes, exactly. An interesting note about that, during the Better Call Saul Insider podcast, Bob Odenkirk was on in the last 10 minutes or so, and when talking about the difference between Saul and Jimmy and slipping Jimmy, is that Saul knows about the collateral damage that he wreaks, but he doesn't care. Whereas Jimmy just isn't aware. He doesn't notice it, but he would care about it if he was aware. And he does care when he becomes aware about it. Speaking of Kim and her new oil company gig, she gets it, of course, from Mesa Verde. They offer her 
this new client and she's kind of a little bit overwhelmed, but she realizes she can recommend a client rather than just taking it on herself. But as we see uh, later, she decides to take it on herself. But first at the restaurant, randomly, there's Howard. You know, when I was listening to the podcast, Patrick, uh, who plays Howard Hamlin, brought up an interesting angle about it that, think about Howard's position. He's coming out to the restaurant to talk to some clients, and oh, there's his former protege that he's estranged with. Well, what do you do? What's polite in that case? You have to go talk to them and say something to them. And he wasn't meaning to demean her necessarily there, but he did. Yeah, sit. I insist. <laughs> yeah, that was definitely a power move from him. Whether he meant it to be or not, he just has this natural power. I don't know. But then he brings up Doc Review to her as well, and that has to be a, a tiny dick. I'm sure on some level, once he engages with her, some subconscious resentment is going to come forth. But I do believe that he was mostly, I'm going to say, behaving in his natural character, which is to not avoid conflict. Does that make sense? I think he's the type of person to confront things head on. Does that make sense? Especially when it's sort of public like this. It would be too weird for him to show up, her be there, and him leave, and them not to talk to each other. That's not his character. He's going to address it, right? He's not one to ignore an elephant in a room. Yeah. He might be one to not go in a room where there might be an elephant, right? <laughs> he doesn't want to get mixed up in things that are weird or shady or whatever. He's However, allergic to tusks. Yeah, yeah. But he's already had this confrontation from Kim. It's not, I don't think, in his character to avoid it once he's mixed up in it. Kim, however, is definitely thrown off her game by Howard's presence here, by him coming to their table. She decides to clear her debts with him by writing him a check and she goes there to slip it to him and she copies Howard just like she copied him with the buttoning move mm-hmm. at court. She says, sit, I insist. <laughs> Student has become the master. <laughs> also, this check, by the way, gave us a date for the episode, March 4th, 2003. Outside, they have one last confrontation and Kim sort of gets the last word again. Howard confronts her about how much damage they've accrued because of the testimony and because of that, because of that hearing in general, and how he's been having every single meal every day has been with clients who in damage control, et cetera, et cetera. And of course, as we've already pointed out, he has resentment over knowing the truth about the document exchange. So uh, it's a double whammy, all these things that are really frustrating. And so he kind of actually raises his voice, loses his temper a little bit. That's his version of losing his temper. It's, it doesn't exactly get nasty, but... By far the most emotion we've seen from Howard ever. Yeah. Kim also loses her temper here, and she first says that it was all very convenient to ignore Chuck's illness when it suited him, Howard. And this is kind of an emotional tack to take on it because she is concerned or feels bad about Chuck's state and how no one is really helping him or moving forward on this. But she goes with a more legal or debate-oriented argument when she says... No, it's on you. You're the one that's been hiding it from the clients, which is the thing that he is definitely culpable of. That gives her kind of the last word in a legal sense, like you said, but it doesn't necessarily give her the moral high ground. Yeah, both of them are doing at least something wrong, right? Both of them on some level have made some sort of mistake and are both trying to dig on the other one for having done it. And I feel like Kim comes away with the last word here. You know, Howard kind of like stuck for what to say. But I think if he had another moment to consider it and or wanted to, you know, get the last word in, he would say, well, you know, you're not exactly being forthright with your clients either, right? He knows, she knows that Jimmy really did switch those documents and she's hiding that on some level from Essa Verde in the same way that Howard maybe was hiding from the Hamlin clients that 
Chuck wasn't healthy, you know. So you do what every normal person does when you're mad at them and you destroy $14,000. (laughs) 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 I really liked one thing about this scene in particular, which is that when it cuts to it, we've just been at dinner with them and you're not sure how Howard's going to escalate this scenario. You're worried that he's going to come back. There's going to be some scene. You don't know exactly what will happen, but it cuts to Kim talking outside with the Mesa Verde people with a long shot from far away of her saying goodbye to them. And then Howard comes out. He's been watching, waiting for her to be (laughs) not with her clients and so that he can have a moment, but he still makes a huge scene at the valet service in front of some people, which is something else entirely from Howard getting mad in private. It was even more of an outstanding thing for him to do. So we go from a scene where Howard is reluctant to accept Ken's money to a scene where Kim is reluctant to accept Jimmy's money. Mm-hmm. Yeah, from the get-go, when she walks in or even just hears the music, Jimmy and his guitar on the floor, I think, <laughs> just sends off warning bells that something is up with him. <laughs> and he has a nice-looking guitar. What did he do? <laughs> <laughs> well, apparently he learned smoke on the water, but not very well. <laughs> Learning. He's learning smoking. Okay, water. yeah, we'll give him time. We'll see how he's done by the end of the season. We also see Jimmy get mad here at Kim. He takes it out on her, which isn't something we see a whole lot. We, we see Jimmy get mad, but usually he's not snarky at Kim. But he apologizes immediately, you know, he... Just says his back hurts and people suck and she understands. And it reminded me of when Kim apologized immediately to Paige and said that I shouldn't have done that. That was unprofessional. Just I like that sort of quick apology that people can have. Yeah, that was cool. I also like that scene in general. I thought it was good parallels to many other scenes that had happened in a realistic way that people behave. Sometimes we're frustrated about something and we snap at someone that didn't really deserve it. And sometimes we apologize for it. (laughs) And it's a trait that I think is admirable that makes you like a character, especially in an episode where you need reasons to like Jimmy, Mm -hmm. is to see them be apologetic about something. But then Jimmy just goes ahead and blows the game and says, but you believe me, right? And I'm like, <laughs> what, what, what? Why? Why do you say that? She believes him a little bit less than she did before. <laughs> and of course, her reaction is, is is very typical Kim. She goes and works harder. This is some, something I said at least an episode or two ago. She grabs the box and is like, no, I'm doing this. And we get this pretty hilarious little sub moment where she goes in her room, comes right back out. And in that moment, Francesca is pulling out a magazine and just casually slides it right back away (laughs) because she hasn't really gotten it out yet. (laughs) I imagine she has a little bit less of a workload now that Jimmy doesn't have any clients. So she's got some time to read about a vacation to Hawaii. She might as well. (laughs) One thing I noticed in this episode with her accepting this client that maybe she really shouldn't accept, maybe she can handle it, but she definitely had a very full workload, is that there's this theme of the characters pushing themselves. Jimmy's pushing himself, Kim is. And when you think about Chuck and Nacho, for example, they're all just pushing the limits. Howard? And Howard, that's true. Francesca's really pushing herself. (laughs) (laughs) To go to Hawaii. (laughs) Chuck pushed himself on what he described as almost a nine when he walked to the phone to call his therapist... Dr. Lara Cruz, who is actress Claire Duvall. Yeah, Claire Duvall is from, she's known for But I'm a Cheerleader by Jamie Babbitt, and she's also been in Veep and a whole lot of other things. She's been in this show before. We've seen her in season one and season two as Chuck's doctor. Chuck obviously has very copious notes on his state of mind and the level of pain with very precise to the point 
two five, you know, three and a quarter pain, this and that. It's very precise as you would expect him to be. I wonder how completely honest it is, though. I wonder if he's dumbing the numbers down a little bit to make the psychologist feel a little bit better about his state. That's entirely possible, and this is something new we see from him as well. He's extremely confident. He's, like, exuberant. He's bouncy. He's walking around. He's gesticulating. He's making grand plans for himself when he's healthy. But then he has a down moment where he admits that this is possibly the worst experience of his life. I thought it was interesting that he called this the worst experience of his life, but what he said was the worst experience was him being proven wrong. It wasn't him seeming crazy. It wasn't him saying these awful things, giving that like villainous rant or anything mm-hmm. like that. It was, oh, I there was a battery in my pocket the whole time. Not just being proven wrong, but so publicly being proven wrong, like officially under oath in front of all his co-workers. And, but still, uh, it wasn't being proven unlikable. Which is what he also was in that scenario. True, true. And it also proved beyond a doubt that his problem is in his head. And that's what he questions at the end. He says, well, if this is all in my head, then what have I done? And it's really great acting there. It's really, it's it's amazing. He goes from this really happy to this really questioning himself in just a few seconds. It's also interesting that he is ostensibly pretty candid here. Talking to his doctor, he doesn't have... Other than, you know, natural reasons of embarrassment or whatever, but he doesn't have a reason to be dishonest. Other than, again, my theory that maybe he's being dishonest because he's trying to push his own progress farther than it should be. He's trying to convince her he's better than he really is. But my point is that some of these things he's admitting to, like that being the worst day of his life or his concern about his own mental state of being, if this is in his mind, he might not admit these things to Howard or to Jimmy or his ex-wife or someone else. Certainly. And he describes his experience at the grocery store, and we see it as well. He, of course, is naming all the things with their colors, which is kind of funny. It reminds us of the own... The- it- it's us. Yes. It reminds us of ourselves. Yeah, yeah, the color theory analysis. Yeah, he goes blue shirt, yellow wall, yeah, purple first sweater. Two colors as we're watching, the, as we're watching each episode, we're doing the same thing. We're like, oh, Francesca's got pink on. Oh, Gus is wearing blue. You know. And then he says, orange, oranges. Yeah. <laughs> and he has to go through the freezer aisle, which of course is like, oh, of course he's got to walk through the freezer aisle. Of course they're going to make him do that. It couldn't be the the fruit aisle. You know, <laughs> it had to be the blazing electric electricity on either side of his massive you know refrigeration devices and it looks like he might be about to lose it but next we see he's just strolling up to his house with howard waiting for him and howard breaks the news about the malpractice insurance that we've been waiting on ever since jimmy you know muddied the waters there to put it mildly with the insurance company we have yet to see the full scope of that damage and that's where we're left with chuck's plot Jimmy would say he cleared the waters. (laughs) (laughs) He jimmied the waters. (laughs) Fandomedia.reviews In the Mike and Cartel side of things, we start off with Mike digging up this innocent bystander, also known as the Good Samaritan, that person that got killed after the truck was robbed, who wasn't involved in the game at all. And this is funny, we speculated a lot on what Mike wanted from Nacho in the previous episode that we released, and I, for one, didn't even consider that the bystander might be missing, and 
It makes perfect sense when you consider what Anita said about never having an answer to her husband's disappearance, why Mike would want to give this family the answer about about why this man was killed, and we, in fact, even see a shot of the hand with the wedding ring just that's, driving yeah. that point home. That's how he was able to find the body in the first place is kind of the implication. That's the metal that he was finding. Yeah, like you said, she doesn't know whether he just decided to leave. She assumes that he fell and broke his neck, but doesn't know. And this is, maybe he ran away. And that eats away at her, that 1% chance that something else happened, that they just, you know, it doesn't give you that peace of mind. And that's what Mike is giving to this man's family, this innocent bystander, this good Samaritan who paid the price for being a good Samaritan. I remember last episode that I said I couldn't decide if I wanted this mystery, if you will, of both why Mike suddenly decided to help Nacho and what it was he wanted from Nacho. Couldn't decide if I wanted that to be something that we should have been able to figure out or not. And I (laughs) feel like we should have. I, I do feel like once we had all the information and I reflect on it all, yes, it all makes sense. I see. I see it now. But in thinking about it, I got another bit of understanding about Mike, something, again, that's been there, but it was sort of reinforced for me. This particular concern he has about Hector having killed this guy who wasn't part of the game, I think some of that comes from his own relationship with his son, who, you know, way back in season one, when we get Mike's history, we find out that his son was not part of this corruption that pretty much all the other cops, including Mike, were part of. And Mike finally convinces his son, look, man, just go ahead. Everyone else is doing it. Don't worry about it. And then his son gets killed. And, you know, Mike just has this personal guilt that he's living with over him not being as good a person as his son. And his son is now dead. And it's the same thing all over again. Right. For other people. And, of course, Mike isn't exactly going down this road of being a good Samaritan himself in general, but he does have certain things that he feels very strongly about, and this is one of them. Because obviously Mike is about to work for Gus and do progressively worse things, though he still has this code of honor, and that's something he at least feels strongly about. You can see how maybe he rationalizes later on. I remember that scene in Breaking Bad when he walks into that, that outfit with those guards and just like... Just shoots up like eight people, just kills them without thinking twice. And I'm, I remember in that scene thinking that on some level, all those people, they had like a mom and a brother and a son. Like they were real people and real characters. But Mike has gotten deep enough that he can justify that. Well, because they're in a game. They should have known. That's the risk they took. So he just murders them left and right. But if they're not in a game, no one better touch them. You know, it's a, a weird code. It's, an, you know, it has its inconsistencies, but it also has its consistencies. And you can see how it's going to lead Mike down his dark path, even though right now he probably thinks of himself as a good person doing good deeds. But he's going to side himself with Gus against Hector, who he perceives as the bad guy. But Gus is doing some bad things, too, and Mike's going to be his right-hand man. So Mike is a good person to be a right-hand man. He is very thorough. He's very clever. I thought it was a really good scene. In fact, the phone call he has when he reports the dead body, it's like he covered all the bases. Like, no, I don't want to give him my name. I was trespassing. I was using my metal detector to look for arrowheads. You know, he, he has a reason for everything that he was doing. Hangs out the phone and wipes it off so there's no fingerprints. Even if somehow they trace the call to that spot, he won't be associated with it. But there's still some things that he isn't skilled at. He doesn't know how to launder money, for instance. He has that huge stack of money, $200,000. And so he goes to Gus to see if he'll help him with that. And Gus seems to make him an offer that will lead Mike to work for him full time. But he also says that he wouldn't take money from his family, which Mike has got to appreciate. Of course, he's doing that, I think, for cynical reasons, because he knows that's the one thing that's important to Mike. And really, Gus 
wants Mike. He knows Mike is extremely valuable and useful to his operation. So, of course, I would never take money from your family is really just code for... I'm going to get favors from you later for this. This is, you know, I'm going to take care of you, but you are absolutely going to take care of me as well. And we're going to do business together. And the big, powerful handshake. Yeah, it was (laughs) such a momentous occasion that they ended the episode with that shot. Yeah. You can imagine that the value that Gus gets from Mike is way greater than 20% of 200,000 or (laughs) whatever. Yeah, it's nothing. Yeah. So he got, and Gus is a consummate diplomat. So that was a natural maneuver for him. He's good at that sort of thing. Fandomedia.reviews. Now, speaking of protecting the families, Nacho, that's what his whole plot line is about right now. We get this awesome montage of him making the pills and being up all night going through this effort of painstakingly cleaning out the old pills, putting the new powder in the pills, practicing his moves, palming the pill bottle, throwing it into the pocket, just all these different things, and he's just intense the whole time, and we get this really great song during it. Yeah, I thought it was really good acting from Michael Mando in this sequence, and I mean, in general, but when his father, Manuel, comes in, for example, he just looks so nervous, but concerned, and like, full of just genuine love and care for his father and all of these things it was really a great sequence yeah and he's super clever with the destroying of the air conditioner right that was like wonder what he's doing that for and then it just made so much sense it was brilliant how all those elements fit together his nervousness normally you might sweat a little because you're doing something that's extremely dangerous but he had a sweat alibi in this (laughs) case and of course the even more important thing it accomplishes is it gets Hector to take his jacket off which is the crucial part here for him getting the pills in the first place. I definitely love that scene. I really like how they show the practice and planning that goes into something like this. A lot of times the good guy is just really good at everything. You know what I mean? They don't need to practice or plan. They just do it and it works. But they show that this is a calculated effort on Nacho's part. Before we see the actual switch itself, though, we see Nacho meeting with the different people that are bringing him money. First one is Crazy 8. And Crazy 8 says, Don Hector, you know, like to say goodbye, to show him respect. And he waits like a split second for a response. Doesn't get one. (laughs) The other dude who was in there gets up to leave. He considers saying something to him and just decides not to. He's already learned. No point. (laughs) (laughs) Crickets. Nacho uses these bills that he's taking to give him an excuse to come over to Hector. He brings this bill over there and asks him if it looks funny to him. And the Better Call Saul wiki, which is what I use to double check facts for the episodes, they listed this as a marked bill, which is for tracking and for busting drug rings and things like that. But it's clearly stated that it is a fake bill they're worried about. So it is being counterfeit that they're concerned about, which... I honestly don't think they'd be that concerned about, but Nacho's looking for an excuse to come over there, so that's a perfectly fine excuse. Then we get the amazing tension of him standing behind him, wrong pocket, then he has to do the other (laughs) pocket, and woo, this is really well done. I love that scene. Visual elements. That whole scene with Hector and Nacho and the switch and everything was a well-pieced-together scene, visually having Nacho in the foreground, Hector in the background, and then down into Nacho's lap as he's fumbling with the pills. And behind Hector, the cook. Right, yep, a third level of the depth of the scene. A couple times you can still notice the fan barely turning with his broken blade, you know, adding to the feel of heat in the room. 
It was also interesting in the earlier scene when he's getting the pills ready, that uh, sort of magnifying glass with the light on it that he was using to be able to see the pills to do this little operation. I think my favorite visual element of the episode was Mike digging. Sorry, Mike's digging. <laughs> there were like five <laughs> or six mics there. <laughs> I agree. That was really neat. I really like that image, that above shot with more of them appearing and more holes appearing on the ground. Kind of a rough ending there, though, with a hand with a wedding ring on it. Like, oh, Okay. <laughs> I also really liked those perspective shots from the metal detector's perspective, from Mike's perspective, but, you know, you're seeing the detector. The opening shot of that whole scene was, like, from inside the trunk coming up at Mike with the sky above him. That was a neat shot. So, as usual, we're always paying close attention to the colors. We know that the showmakers put an effort into meaning and symbolism behind the colors in the show. And we see Marco with Jimmy and their scam about to run. He's wearing red, of course. I appreciated in the scene with Hector and Nacho how Hector was in a light red to Nacho's darker red because Nacho was the one, you know, plotting murder. Yep, yep. Jimmy, who is deciding to do something shady here, is wearing yellow. He had been wearing blue and green in a past in his little directing scenes, but he's now got yellow on for this shady play that he's going to make. The film crew, interestingly, is in all red, basically. And I particularly liked Kim had a red checkbook. <laughs> yeah, when she went to write the check to Howard. I also thought it was neat that Paige, she was wearing red in the last episode when she had that kind of uh, confrontation with Kim. And I thought it was just sort of a relative badness to Kim's goodness and her judgment of Chuck. But again, she had yellow on in this meeting, in this dinner there we're, we're having. She had yellow trim on her shirt. So yeah, it was kind of um, like a yellow and blue patterned blouse. Yeah, I'm back to being slightly suspicious if Paige is doing something. Oh, she's a banker. <laughs> <laughs> her boss, Kevin, on the other hand, was in blue. And Kim, of course, is in her blue always. It's like, we should definitely have warning bells going off if Kim is ever in a different color. Well, you can trust Kevin. He has a mustache. <laughs> I appreciated that those two music twins, one of them was in blue. Blue, while the one who came in with info about the TV station and was generally a little bit more aggressive was in a blue and yellow and red plaid shirt. So it was uh, definitely telling that he is the more aggressive of the two, I guess. The more willing to break a deal that he had made. <laughs> they both lost a lot of green. <laughs> one thing I took note of in general the past few episodes, I've been seeing more and more green. And the closest I've got on them is they represent potentially a cover or a front or maybe, I don't know if disguise or is quite the right word. But the Gatwood oil box with the paperwork that Kim got, it had green. It was like a cardboard box, but it, the writing and everything on it, the trim was all green. I think it, I mean, we've talked about this before, so we won't go into it too much, but I think it represents those things and more. I think it represents money, it represents, you know, the front. I'd maybe I, I wonder how much it represents pride in some sense. Chuck, in particular, mm, yeah. was wearing green when he was meeting with his doctor there, and he was very confident and exuberant, so it was fitting. Later, Success, maybe, it represents? Yeah, maybe. And later on, he's wearing a blue sweater, however, when he goes to the grocery store. Whenever we see things from Chuck's perspective, we have these kind of intense sounds that represent the pain that he's feeling. And it's very much present when he's walking the, the gauntlet of the freezer aisle there and it's really starting to build and the camera pans up to kind of look up at him. And then it cuts away. 
audio elements. Something that's become familiar is whenever Chuck is out in the world dealing with his illness is the pain that he's dealing with from these electronics and waves that he's feeling are represented by this kind of intense sound that's like a building kind of piercing noise. It'll be interesting to see as he seems to be getting over it if the sound changes or if it starts to fade or if one day we have a scene where, hey, that sound's gone. It's not happening. And that'll be very telling, like removal of that sound if we don't have it. You're a lot more optimistic than I am. I think things are going downhill for Chuck. <laughs> well, I think certain things will be, but maybe his illness will be getting better at because he's facing it at least. If it does, again, that silence will be really telling and that'll be a sign that something's happened. Speaking of silence, Mike's scene starts with silence. For a while, he's just preparing his dig and before the viewers, we viewers know it's happening. He's kind of spiked out this spot to give himself a, a center to work around. And as he gets his way, starts to, well, once he has the metal detector, there starts to be some music. There aren't a lot of sounds of electronics out in the middle of the desert to, to cloud Mike's hearing. Yeah, right. <laughs> Not much in general to hear at all. <laughs> yeah, it starts out with just, you know, sounds of nature and paper rustling. And then as we see these many mics, you get this soft and slow and honestly a little eerie music for Mike and I'm pretty sure it's maybe some sort of Mike's theme because later on when he's counting his money there's the same similar music and I was starting to wonder if I have to go back now and rewatch every episode <laughs> if this is the same song. It's not the same. I don't know if it's the same song but it's definitely the same style. There's always this very reverbed out guitar, very slow and yeah, it's very much a Mike's kind of style they have like a like theme, a Mike motif. Yeah. <laughs> In the same way that music swells into Mike's scene, music swells into Nacho's scene. It starts off with him in the restaurant with Hector, and in the background, the sizzle of the grill, and there is uh, music playing on the radio. And slowly, as we get more into Nacho's mind, as he's getting into his task, all that noise fades away, and music takes over. And we do hear the sounds of the clicking of the pills and the bottle and everything and it maybe even seems amplified to us or to him in that moment it seems deafening yeah yeah but in context of the sound that really exists you probably couldn't hear it at all yeah he to him every little click is as loud as it can be and they trick us by like they do with chuck the sounds are from his perspective they're supposed to show how intense this is, and it really works by shutting out the music, by shutting out the grill, focusing on the clicking, the tension of the scene is really driven to a fever pitch. I really liked the whoosh sound when he tosses it, gets it in. <laughs> it was kind of like a relief whoosh, because he's like, ah, oh, he did it. <sighs> and he went over and got the espresso and had that moment where he just kind of clenched his fists, his hands kind of just like, ah... And now we have to wait. We'll see what happens. Well, will Hector take the pills next episode? Or will they maybe delay it one? Maybe we wait and it doesn't happen until episode 10? I don't know. I really liked uh, in the scene when Nacho was practicing the song that they played there. That was called Cold Feet by Fink. And I thought that was, one, a really fitting song for what was happening there. But also the title is quite fitting. He didn't get cold feet, though. <laughs> Hot feet. I was going to say, it would have been Sweaty fitting feet. to be Hot Feet, too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There was one subtle little thing that may maybe was just a coincidence, but I, I feel like they put enough effort in here to have done it by design. Just as the twins and Saul kind of break off from their little confrontation, there's this, doom, doom, doom. you know, th there's all this noise and music in the background of the music store, but at the timing of this little quirky bass line, it came out just as they move off from him. It reminded me of Seinfeld. Yeah, it cracked me up. 
final thoughts. All right, so Aziz, you said that the nacho scene was the best. Do you have any other favorites? I would have to say I love the line, orange, oranges. (laughs) What about you, Shay? I really liked the nacho scenes in general, but I won't get into that. But I think my favorite scene of the episode was Kim and Howard's back and forth in the restaurant. It was kind of funny to me in a lot of ways, what with her copying him and seeing him out of sorts. It made me think of some comedy shows that we've watched where they escalate things in ridiculous ways. And I had these expectations for how things might go. But instead, it was just an eye-opening scene about their perspectives on each other. What about you, Sean? My favorite was definitely Nacho practicing and preparing for his his master plan. Fandomedia.reviews. And that's it for this episode. I'm just an innocent bifander. And I'm Fanuel Varga. And I'm the good Samara fan.